Good morning, boys. Good to see you this morning. So good to see you and be with you as we uh, continue on in our study of these Catholic epistles, this series that we've called uh, For the Brothers. Uh, It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you missed last week, Sanders, he started us out on our journey in the uh, epistle of James. Now, if you missed it, uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Talk about uh, a family heritage. Half-brother of Jesus in his epistle it's uh, really shaped not so much by Paul, but we read it in light of the teachings of Jesus. So Sermon on the Mount and James kind of go together. Now we saw last week that some of the major themes of James, if we were to sum them up, uh, is true faith. What does true faith look like? Uh, what does it look like to be growing and maturing in Christ? And really, what does it look like to courageously live out the faith in our day-to-day lives? I mean, that courageous thing, we see that in James. If you remember last week, you know, Sandy kind of laid out those points for us. And those points, my goodness, as disciples of Christ, we take up the role of a servant, which goes really against our nature. We, we rejoice in suffering. We uh, put aside our doubts. Those are not easy things. Those are courageous things. So we see that all throughout James. Now, Sandy, he started us out in verse 1 and took us all the way down to verse 18. And today we're going to pick up right where he left off in verse 19. So go ahead and flip there. uh, James chapter 1, verse 19. Speaking of courageous, uh, this last week I saw a little uh, clip on ESPN. It was a little video on the Twitter feed, like a two-minute clip. Um, of our good friend, old Hugh Freeze. Now, I know you think, I know, you think about Hugh Freeze how you want. You know, Frank or, uh, Fred Schaefer and I were Ole Miss homers, unashamedly so, and so he's going to deal with it. There he is, Rocket Man. Patrick over here, my friend, uh, he was actually a converted Ole Miss fan. His wife converted him to be a rebel, and I uh, gave him my condolences. You're going to have a very hard life, my friend. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I saw this video of Hugh Freeze, and he gives this halftime speech. You can say what you want about him, but the man knows how to motivate people. It was a clip during the halftime of the Georgia game, and if you remember that game, Ole Miss was up huge at half, right? But if you've been keeping up with the Rebels, that really hasn't meant squat so far. <laughs> we, we have blown some big leads, and so Hugh, he gives this, this halftime speech to encourage his team to, to stay faithful, uh, to stay salty, and to finish the fight. And to do that, he gives them a devotion out of 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Now, if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 11, the chronicler, he talks about the mighty men of David in that passage. And we know the mighty men of David. Those are the folks who were faithful to the Lord. They were obedient to the Lord. They were valiant, courageous soldiers of David. Now, in Hugh's little halftime devotion, he focuses on verse 22, the story of Benaniah. And this is what he says to a play. I'm not going to be as dramatic as Hugh, but you can imagine. But this is, this is essentially what he said. He said, guys, in the story of Benaniah, we we meet a lion. And in this story, that lion had a prey, and that prey was Benaniah. Now, most of the times when a man is pitted against a lion, that lion's going to go off with a man-witch in its mouth, but not so much in this story. Benaniah gathered up his courage, he girded his loins, got a weapon, and he chased that lion. Now, that lion knew that Benaniah meant business, so that lion ran. (laughs) And not only ran, he found a pit in the snow, and he hid in that pit. So Benaniah eventually catches up, and he comes to the edge of that pit, and he looks in, and in the darkness, he sees those two little beady eyes looking up at him. Now, any normal man at that point would have said, we have won the day. (laughs) This lion is in a pit. It's not bothering us anymore. Let's get up on out of here. But not Benaniah. Benaniah took courage and he jumped down in that pit because he knew that lion would eventually get out and become the threat that it always was. So he jumped down in there and all hell broke loose. But then silence came and eventually Benaniah climbed out of that pit. Bloodied, yes. Scarred, yes. But he stood in victory. Then he turns to the coach speech and he says, guys, you have to stop acting as if the purpose of life is to get to death safely. Listen, you can run from those bulldogs, but you'll be running from those bulldogs your whole life, so be a man, take courage, 
and slay the bulldogs. <laughs> it was this awesome speech, and seriously, I almost made Sarah, my wife, go to Dick's Sporting Goods to get me a helmet. Okay, I was ready to, I was ready to sign up. But Hugh missed the point of that story. The story, the point of that story is not Benaniah. The point of that story is the greater Benaniah. Because in the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself fought a lion, but it wasn't any normal old lion. It was Satan himself. Like Benaniah, Jesus did destroy that lion, but unlike Benaniah, it came at the cost of his own life. However, three days later, the greater Benaniah did get up out of that pit. Scarred, yes. But he stood in ultimate victory over the great lion, Satan himself, and not just him, but all of the ancient powers. Sin, our sin, even death. Jesus Christ, the greater Benaniah, achieved ultimate victory. Now, it was a great halftime speech, but if we're going to apply it to a bunch of guys like us, we have to understand that our strength and our motivation to be mighty men after Christ, to live out the faith courageously, to be obedient to Him and to finish the fight, that does not come from within ourselves. It doesn't come from our own ability. It doesn't come from mustering up our courage. It doesn't come from our own determination. But it comes from resting and believing in the fact that that ultimate victory that Jesus Christ achieved, He achieved it for us. And we're secured in that victory. Now I bring that up because that is the type of life that James is calling us to in this passage. In this whole letter. He's saying, guys, you are being called to be mature and courageous men of faith. But what we have to understand, though, is that faith is not passive. Faith isn't just a mental ascent to Christ's victory. Okay, we can believe that these new chairs, by the way, aren't they plush? They're nice on the rear, aren't they? <laughs> we can believe that these chairs are going to hold us up. But until we sit in them, we are not living by faith. James says that we must be courageous, mature men of faith, but faith is not passive. Faith is active. It's living in light of the gospel. It's living in light of Christ's victory. As Sandy said last week, the entire thesis of James in this letter is that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. That is the gospel, but a saving faith is never alone. In Christ, we have been given new life and now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not perfectly, but actively, we live out that faith. And that's James' hope for us. That we would be a people, mature in Christ, who would live in light of Christ's victory and live in light of the gospel. Not perfectly, but actively. Now last week, the point of emphasis is how does a man after Christ's own heart secure in Christ, live in light of the gospel as he responds to trials and sufferings? This week, the point of emphasis is how does a man mature in Christ respond to truth? How do we respond to truth as mature men in Christ? Now we're going to read chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Then I'll pray for us and we'll dive in. So chapter 1, verse 19 uh, through 27. Hear the word of God. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the one who bends down, the word for look there is to kind of bend your body, to look down. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, continues in it. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained 
from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that um, you would meet with us this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would settle our hearts and settle our minds, and that you would block any distractions from this day at this moment. That we may look towards you and feast on your word. That we wouldn't simply be informed by it, but that we'd be transformed by it. That we would see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ. That we would gaze into the glory of the gospel and be filled with your spirit. Lead us, O Lord, speak to us, for your servants listen. And it's in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, real quick. At the beginning of this passage, uh, James addresses his audience as beloved brothers. Okay, so the assumption is that the folks he is writing to are born-again Christians. These are Christians. Now, most scholars think that the people that he's writing to were most likely Jewish converts, believers, but they were Jewish converts, which meant they were religious folk, all right? They were church-going people. They knew their Old Testament well. I mean, they had that bad boy memorized, the most of them, okay? They knew their religious traditions from the Old Testament. They were church-going people. If they lived in America, you know, they would fit well in the Bible Belt, okay? So James gives them this letter as believers, and he also gives us this letter as fellow religious Bible belters, because he wants us to know what true faith looks like lived out. What does true faith look like? Now, as Sandy said last week, we must fight against the temptation to think that James and Paul are preaching two different gospels, okay? Like we said before, they believe the same thing, it's just two sides of the same coin. James firmly believes that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But what he's teaching us here is that a true saving faith always manifests itself in changed desires, changed character, and an ever-increasing obedience to Christ. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. They just are. But having said that, James knows, just like himself, we are sinners and we're going to fail in this world and we fail all the time, don't we? And he knows that. So as he calls us to a life of faithful obedience to Christ, he gives us what we most desperately need for that journey. And what we most desperately need for that journey is a right approach to the Word of God. We need to approach the Word of God rightly. There's a wrong way to approach it. We need to approach it rightly. It's essential for us if we're going to grow in Christ's likeness and be faithful to him in this world. Okay, so we have three points as we approach the Word of God rightly. One As mature Christians, we must receive the Word of God humbly. We must receive the Word of God humbly. Number two, we must remember the Word of God constantly. We must remember the Word of God constantly. And thirdly, we must obey the Word of God wholeheartedly. Not perfectly, but wholeheartedly. So three points. Let's look at the first one. We see this in verse 19 through 21. We must receive the Word humbly. Now, in this little subsection, some scholars would say that James, his main point of argument here is for us to have godly speech. Now, that theme is obviously present. If you just look at verses 19 through 21, that speech pattern, that is present there, all right? But James kind of goes deeper than that. He'll pick up speech later, and he'll go in greater detail, but here the issue is much deeper. Godly speech is kind of the fruit of the issue, But what James is talking about here is the root of the issue, and the root of the issue is how have we received the Word of God. Now, in the context here, there's really two options. One, we receive it arrogantly, or two, we receive it humbly. Now, we can know all of the Scripture in the world, and we can have it memorized, but unless we receive it humbly, it really doesn't amount to anything, much like an Ole Miss halftime lead. We must receive the Word of God humbly. Now, having said that, to receive it humbly, James first in verse 19 says that there's a rhythm to receive God's word humbly. Okay, there's a rhythm for it. And we see this in verse 19. There's three steps. It's kind of like the waltz. One, two, three. You need to do that if you're going to do the waltz. There's a way to receive God's word humbly, and he gives us that pattern, that rhythm in verse 19. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to explain those steps, and we're going to see how it applies to the word of God. Okay, the first step in this rhythm, we see at the very beginning, He says, be quick to listen. If you're going to receive the word of God humbly, you must be quick to listen. Now in the Greek, the word for quick there, it means to hasten. It means to to be urgent about it. All right? That word listen, what that really means is is that we're, we're listening to be shaped. We're listening to understand. 
we're basically being teachable. All right, so he says, be urgent to be teachable. Be urgent to understand. Now we say, all right, sounds easy enough, no big deal. But think about that, guys. <laughs> being urgent to understand, okay? Raise your hand if you are urgent to understand when you get in a disagreement with your wife. None of, you know, honey, we haven't spent much time together this week. I don't think we should watch college football this Saturday. How many of you say, you know what, I've never thought about it that way, dear. I would love to go to Bed Bath & Beyond with you. That's a wonderful idea. For most of us, that would be a Herculean effort to do that, okay? And if you're like me, when you come to an argument or an issue to solve, your wife isn't even done speaking before you have like a five-point thesis and a, like a pie chart and a, you know, a slideshow to tell her how she's wrong. <laughs> and usually, if you're like me, you're the one that's wrong. But still... That's difficult for us to be quick to understand. Then there's that word listen, and that's not all that easy either. I counsel a lot of people, and I think it would be so awesome if listening meant simply being quiet until the other done person's done speaking so you can finally tell them how they're supposed to be feeling. But that's not what understanding means. It means that you're intentionally listening to understand, to be shaped and so he says to receive God's word humbly, first we must be quick, we must be urgent to be teachable, we must be urgent to understand. That second step, he says we must be slow to speak. Slow to speak. Now obviously, speaking means speaking. There's not too much about that. But if you look in the context, what he is saying is that we must be intentional, All right, we must be intentional to not form a conclusion quickly. Basically, don't, don't make a judgment on your own too quickly. He's saying be, be, be intentional about not coming to a conclusion too quickly. That's, that's what that means, to be slow to speak. You know, another example in the Kimbrough household, whenever Sarah and I, my wife, we buy a put-together, you know, we bring that box home, and I don't know if you're like me, but I rip that box open, and I put all the parts out on the carpet, and I get my toolbox, and I'm just, I'm just ready to go. I start working, I start putting things together. Then Sarah, you know, hands me the instruction manual. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but like my inner Tim the Toolman Taylor just comes over and, you know, you know that, that, you remember that show? What was it, Home Improvement? Yeah. And I'm not Tim the Toolman Taylor. I have no idea what I'm doing, but that just that manliness comes over me. I don't need the instructions, Sarah. Are you sure? Because you put on the door backwards last time. It's like, I, I got this. And then you put the thing together, and then sure enough, every time it squeaks, and you have like five extra parts, right? And uh, that always happens, and I have to take it, you know, you know, take it apart, and then put it back together appropriately, and it takes like five extra hours, and all of that would have been avoided had I just mellowed in and, and wrestled with and actually read the instructions. And what James is talking about, being slow to speak, he's saying, listen, take your time. Swim in this. Marinate in it before you come with your conclusions. All right, so be, so be urgent to understand. Be urgent to be teachable. Secondly, be slow to make your own conclusions. And thirdly, be slow to anger. Now, not all anger is bad. There's such a thing as righteous anger, but that's not what James is talking about here. He is talking about a deep-seated, combative anger that you would have with another person. Okay, the, the type of anger that, that's almost hatred where you kind of put your flag in the ground and, and you're just you're making a wall against you and another person. And it usually, it's kind of like a fifth grader or like a, a five-year-old in kindergarten class. You know, we love those kids and, you know, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, they're awesome. But have you ever been to a kindergarten class? I mean, those, seriously, they just are at each other's throats. Why? Because, well, little Charlie over there has a red truck and I want that red truck or the teacher's spending enough time with William and not enough time with me and they're infringing upon my carpet space and they just go at each other like, like combatants almost. Right? That's the type of anger he's talking about here. Sometimes we have this anger in our hearts when we look at another person because we've been quick to speak. And slow to listen, we develop this combatant anger in our heart against another person. So what James is saying, if we're going to receive the word of God humbly, there's this rhythm here. We must be quick to listen, urgent to understand, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now the question is, how does this apply to the word of God? And why does James put it in the imperative? He says, you must do this if you're going to receive the word of God appropriately. 
Well, the first reason is, is because it's our natural bent as sinners to receive the word of God arrogantly. Our natural bent is not to receive the word of God with humility, but it's to approach it arrogantly. I wasn't kidding earlier when I said it takes a Herculean effort to do this. For, a non, for an unregenerate person, it absolutely takes a Herculean effort to do that. But even as us as Christians, sinners saved by grace, we still find it difficult to come to the word of God in humility because it is our natural bent to approach it arrogantly, not to sit under it, but to stand over it. For example, how many of you have ever gone to an amen or gone to a sermon or have had a devotion, like on a Wednesday or something, and you've done all of the talking and none of the listening? You know what I mean? Like when you, just say for example, you're just having this great devotion Wednesday morning in Luke chapter 12, and you're just digging everything that Christ is saying. You know, he loves sinners, he loves the poor, and you're just tracking with him totally. But then it comes to like verse 33 in Luke chapter 12 where it says, now sell your possessions and give to the poor. <laughs> and you're like, ah, how do I get off that one? Or how many times do we come to like places like Romans 3 where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and your first thought is, they really have. <laughs> Listen, if every time we go to the word of God and we say to ourselves, yes, I'm right, or we experience no conviction, we're not reading it right. We're doing all the talking and none of the listening. We're standing over the word of God and we're not coming to it humbly. Another example, all of us in here come from different denominations, which is great. We have different theological leanings on certain you know, minor issues, secondary issues, which is good. We need to learn from each other. Some of us come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, which is great. That's good. You know, we are, you know, a long time ago we talked about how God wants from his church a supreme pizza. He wants all the ingredients, and that's great. And some of us, have, we have different preferences in worship, and that's fine. But sometimes, sometimes we allow those preferences and those differences to become dividing walls between us. Our preferences become demands. And we start exalting our differences rather than our shared commonality in Christ. And we're essentially acting like the Jewish Christians treated the Gentiles. That's the whole reason that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. I had a professor in seminary. It was a divine sovereignty and human responsibility class. And the entire class was about soteriology, theology, uh, and how you know, we're saved and and the big argument, the big debate there is, you know, predestination, divine election, and free will. And if you've kept up with that debate, uh, there's been some pretty nasty arguments throughout the years. And, and in this class, we had a debate, and it started to get nasty, and our professor kind of calmed us down. He told us a story about R.C. Sproul. If you know who R.C. Sproul is, he's a guy who is an ardent believer of predestination. I mean, he, he banks on that thing. And he was uh, at a little Q&A one time, and someone in the crowd asked him that, would he think that he would see Billy Graham in heaven? And Billy Graham, you know, he's completely different in soteriology. He's, he's all about free will. And R.C. Sproul said, no, I don't think I'll see Billy in heaven. And the entire crowd just gasped that he would say such a thing. But then he said, I think Billy will be so close to the throne of Christ, I'd be lucky to even catch a glimpse of him. It's a shared commonality in Christ. It's okay to have differences, but sometimes in our haste, we exalt our differences over our shared commonality in Christ. Here's another example. How many times do we look at the culture around us? And as Christians, we mourn over the culture as it becomes more and more immoral and rebellious towards God. But how many times have we looked at the culture around us and all the people that are doing the things that they're doing? And within our hearts, we develop this us-against-them mentality, almost a hatred. We plant our flag in the ground. Listen, it's good for us to mourn over the sins of others and the sins of this world, but that's not how we approach the non-believing world. How do we approach them? We approach them in love. James, his letter is tied to the Sermon on the Mount. And what does Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5.44, he said, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as a true child of your Father. The Jews knew so much about the Old Testament. 
But they hated the non-believer because they approached it arrogantly, never understanding that they themselves were sinners before God. We love the non-believers. We love pagans. We love sinners. Because that's exactly what Jesus did to us when we were still enemies of the cross of Christ. If we approach the word in such a way that it affirms everything that we do, that it never convicts us, that it creates divisions within the body of Christ and it creates within us a hatred for a non-believer, we have received the word of God arrogantly. And it's tragic because James says here, if we approach the word of God in such a way, we will never produce righteousness in the life of another person. Think about that. I mean, when's the last time you yelled at someone into a saving faith? (laughs) That never happens. But more importantly, he says, you'll never produce righteousness in you. We must receive the word of God humbly. And the reason he gives us this rhythm is because it's our natural bent to do the exact opposite. Now, more positively, the reason that he gives us this rhythm is because it leads to a life pleasing to God. In this passage, John says in this verse, verse 20, he said, God desires righteousness from us. Now, the Greek word there, dikaiosune, we normally associate that with the imputation of Christ's righteousness or saving righteousness. That's not how James is using it here. How he's using it is as a life that's pleasing to the Lord. His standard, what he desires from us in the way in which we live our life. He desires us to live a life pleasing to him. That's righteousness. So when we approach the word of God arrogantly over it and not submitting to it or under it, we are not living a life pleasing to the Lord. Now, Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20. Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, Jesus is not talking about saving righteousness. He's not talking about his imputed righteousness, but rather he is talking about following his will. The, The Pharisees of the Old Testament, they knew everything there was to know about the Old Testament, but they never followed the will of God as manifested in Christ because they approached it arrogantly. But what James is saying here is a life pleasing to God then is following Christ. Not just knowing about Christ, but following Christ. And as those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are able to do that when we approach the word of God humbly. So that's the reason he gives it. Now in verse 20, furthermore, not only does he give us a rhythm to receive the word of God humbly, he tells us we must also empty ourselves of the useless calories of sin. We see this in verse 21. So we have a rhythm as we read the Word of God, but he says also empty yourselves of the empty calories of sin. Verse 21, James says, Therefore, after what he just told them about the rhythm, he says, get rid of all moral filth and evil. That is, don't be primarily concerned about the evil out in the world. Don't be primarily concerned about the sins of others. But Barton, you've got to be primarily concerned about your main problem, the sin and the evil in your own heart. And you have to get rid of that. So what he's talking about is living a repentant life, purging ourselves of our former lifestyle before Christ. Purging, getting it out of the way. In high school, I played football, believe it or not, and I had a friend uh, that was on the team with me. And every Thursday, we would have team dinner. We used to go to Barn Hills, but we decided... You know, anything with a snot guard probably wasn't a good place to eat. So we started going to Mr. P's Hot Wings, which, by the way, has the best hot wings in Memphis. I don't care what you say, Mr. P's. And uh, so we were eating team dinner at Mr. P's on Thursday, and we called my friend. He didn't show up, and he said that he had forgotten to come, um, that he was just going to catch up with us on Friday. He just had a huge family dinner, and he was full as a tick, didn't even want to think about food. And we told him, okay, well, we'll Mr. P's, we'll, we'll see you later. He goes, wait, 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 you're at Mr. P's? I said, yeah, we're at Mr. P's. He goes, I'll be there in 10. And so he comes, and uh, he walks right through the front door and goes immediately to the bathroom, comes out of the bathroom like five minutes later, and he orders a 20-piece. And uh, he sits down. We go, bro, did you not just eat dinner? He goes, man, I'll puke up anything for Mr. P's, <laughs> which is you know, by far and away one of the grossest things ever. But I don't think Mr. P had ever been more so proud. All right? This guy just wasted a dinner to get himself some Mr. P's hot wings. But that's the idea here. He was filled. He he didn't have a hunger for Mr. P's, but then he knew how Mr. P's was delicious and how he wanted Mr. P's, so he did everything possible to develop a hunger for it. He purged himself. Non-believers, unregenerate people will never have a hunger for God's word because they are filled on the useless calories of sin. And apart from the Spirit's inner working, they're never going to develop a hunger for it. But even as Christians, sometimes we struggle to hunger after God's Word because we've been nibbling on sin. 
and it curbs our appetite for the only meal that could ever possibly satisfy us. And so James is saying here, receive the Word of God humbly, but you must live a repentant lifestyle. Do away with your former life and feast upon the Word of God. Now what James is talking about here is heavy-duty stuff. He's talking about being humble to God's Word, submitting to it, living a repentant life. He's talking about living out the faith. And that ain't no joke. Those things hurt sometimes. Now how in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, thirdly and lastly, most importantly, we believe in the gospel. That phrase in verse 21 that James talks about, the implanted word, right there, that is the theological basis upon which he commands us to do everything in his letter. Everything that he tells us to do is based off this theological basis, the implanted word. What is he talking about? What he's talking about, he's, refer- he's connecting our life of obedience to our new birth in Christ. The implanted word is referring to basically the gospel's fulfillment of all those new covenant promises back in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You remember those passages. God said that because that his people could never possibly follow his law and fulfill his law and live out his law, it's an impossibility for us. He promised one day that he would write his law, implant the word on his people's heart. Not only that, he would give them his spirit so they would have the desire and the power to follow Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. Your power is not in yourself, but it's the implanted word. Christ has taken that word through his spirit and he's worked it down into our dead and lifeless hearts and he's given us new life. That's where our power is. And that's what he's saying. That's who you are. You are a new creature. (laughs) You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. I've put my law in your hearts. I've given you a new heart. And I've given you my spirit to live a life that is pleasing to me. And nothing's ever going to change that. Not now, not ever. But what he is saying here then, if that's really taken place, if someone has received new life, if we've gone to Christ in humility, If we've gone to him in humility, knowing our spiritual poverty, knowing that we can't save ourselves, we need to save him. He needs to give us life. And we actually have that life. Well, that person is going to want to continue to receive that word. Because to him is his life source. Think about it like this. Don't think of the word of God as your kidneys, okay? You have kidneys, and because of them, you're alive, all right? But you don't go on thinking about your kidneys, You don't go on receiving, I mean, if you have a kidney stone, you might start thinking about your kidneys. But other than that, you don't think about them. You don't continue to receive your kidneys. Think of the word of God more as oxygen. You're alive because of it. But the person who's been made alive by oxygen wants to continue to breathe it in because he knows he needs it. So the implanted word here, what that is, is the the word of Christ that the Spirit has taken into our hearts and transformed it. It's the new life that we have in Jesus. All right, but the the external word, the word that we um, uh, approach in humility, the word that we abide in, that's the actual written word of God. So this is what James is saying. The internal word of God produces within a believer a hunger for the external word. The reason that we hunger for the external word is because we have the uh, internal word in our hearts. But when we go to the external word, it replenishes the power of the implanted word within us. It feeds into each other. And so James says the litmus test for this person then, if, if you have been transformed by the gospel, if it's been planted in your hearts, you're not going to go to the word of God and humi- or arrogantly thinking that you don't need it or standing, bef- or standing over it, but rather you're going to approach it in humility. And this is what you're going to say to Jesus, Christ, I trust you. I trust every word, whether if it hurts me, challenges me, I trust every single word you've given me in your word. I trust it. I need it. And more than that, I need your help to trust you more. So what James is saying, if we're going to be a mature believer, a growing believer in Christ, we receive his word in humility as we would oxygen. We need it. (laughs) So we receive the word of God humbly. Now, secondly... If we're going to be mature believers in Christ, we must remember the word constantly. We see this in verses 23 through 25. We're going to, we skipped over verse 22, we'll come back to it. But in verses 23 through 25, we see that we must remember the word of God constantly. Okay, now the general idea is here, the reason that we would do that, remember the word constantly, 
is because the Word of God is infinitely more valuable than anything else in the world. Okay, even good things. Family, friends, a good job, whatever it might be. The the Word of God is infinitely more precious and important and valuable than anything else in the world. Now, to illustrate this, James gives us this pretty funny proverb, okay? It's a tale of two men. Now, in verses 23 through 24, he tells us about the first man. And the first man is a guy who does not appraise or value the Word of God appropriately. Now, we can read there. It's about a man. He describes it as a person who would go to a mirror in his bathroom, and he looks in the mirror. He sees himself. He gets a full eye view. Then in his haste, he leaves completely forgetting what he saw. All right, so as we look at this, we might think that James is talking about vanity, right? That, you know, kind of like, a, I don't know, the fawns from Happy Days. Some guy who goes to the mirror, he looks at himself, he just thinks he looks perfect, and, you know, he doesn't even comb his hair, and he walks off. I was like that in high school. I had the spiked hair and the Tommy Hill. I looked ridiculous, but I thought I looked awesome. Um, but he's not talking about vanity here. Okay, that would be ridiculous enough to come to the Word of God and say, oh, I'm, I'm really appreciate what Christ is saying here, but that doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm peachy clean. Everything's fine. That would be ridiculous, but that's not what James is talking about. In fact, what James is talking about is far more ridiculous than that. It's a person who goes to the mirror and sees himself as he really is. All of his flaws, all of his issues. Toothpaste on his tie and his fly undone. <laughs> but in his haste to get to work, he leaves and never does anything about it. Have y'all ever done that before when you go to work? That's like one of my worst fears in the world. When I was an intern and I didn't know, you know, up from, you know, bottom, Sandy told me a story one time that uh, he had a pastor friend that preached almost an entire sermon without realizing his fly was undone. <laughs> and uh, he, was, he was turning around, he was preaching, he was really getting into it. He turned around and someone in the choir, you know, did one of these numbers. And uh, <laughs> the pastor looked down and did this <laughs> right in front of the congregation, you know, and that's been my worst fear. Like, seriously, every time I'm up front, I have this cold sweat that comes over me. It's like, oh, Lord, is the barn door open? <laughs> and it's terrifying. What James is saying, that this man is ridiculous because he's gone to the word of God and he's seen himself as he really is. He sees all of his flaws. He sees what's wrong. But in his haste, he departs from the word of God. He never applies it. And that's tragic. And it's tragic because I'm convinced that their churches are filled with people who do such things. Who look into the Word of God and they see how terrible and grievous their sin is. They even see the gracious provision that God gives us in Christ. But in haste, they depart and they forget what they saw almost as if those two realities don't even exist. They don't appreciate or appraise the Word rightly. They don't value it rightly. Now, James isn't trying to shame us here. He's being pastoral. He says, guys, I want you not to be those who are deceived. Now, how does that deceive us? Well, imagine, you know, you go to Amen on a Thursday. You have a devotion on a Wednesday, and you go to church every Sunday. I don't care how much you nod your head in agreement. If you're not applying what you're hearing, applying the gospel to yourself, it does not amount to anything. It does not amount to change is what James is saying. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says it's even a marker for spiritual death. That if we treat the word indifferently, it's a marker of spiritual death. Then positively, we get the second person in verse 25. And in verse 25, this is a man who appraised the word of God appropriately. This is a guy who teaches us that word of God is of infinite worth because it leads to freedom and blessing. In verse 25, we get that second man. Now in that verse, we get that phrase, the perfect law. Okay, that's not simply referring to the law of Moses in the Old Testament. What that's referring to is the law of Moses and all of the word of God perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Jesus teaches us that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Okay, so what he's talking about here, the perfect law, it's the gospel law in Christ and the gospel way of Christ, which we see in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that this is the law that I've looked at and have valued as infinite worth. He doesn't see it as constricting. He doesn't see it as binding. He doesn't see it as a noose around his neck, 
but he values it greater than everything else in the world because he knows that this gospel way of Christ leads to actual freedom and it leads to blessing. It leads to blessing. The psalmist in 19 chapter 10, or uh, in Psalm 19 chapter 10, the psalmist says, God's word is more precious than the abundance of pure gold. And this right man, this man who valued the word of God rightly, he saw that. He saw that it was more precious than all the gold in the world, and he saw it more just as important as oxygen, because in it, he was enabled to have and live out actual freedom. And it's kind of like if you had a house full of kids in a giant backyard. The grass was lush and it was fun to play in. But you didn't have a fence. There was a street that was lined up against your yard and big time trucks were going back and forth. And on the back of your yard, you had this big ditch and there's rocks and water in it. It's just danger. And your kids are never going to be able to enjoy that backyard because there's danger on every side. But if you put up that fence, that enables your kids to enjoy that backyard for all of its worth. And that's what the law of Christ is. It enables us to actually have freedom. No law doesn't mean freedom. It's chaos. It's anarchy. But the right law, the good law of Christ, enables us to actually have freedom and liberty in this life. And the psalmist understood that, and so he desired it. He yearned for it. Four things he did because he appraised the word of God rightly. One, he studied it. And we see that there. The word for look He looked intently into the perfect law. The word for look is to actually bend over, to contort one's body, to gaze into seriously the beauty and the power of the word. He studied it. He meditated on it. Secondly, he continued in it. All right, he yearned for it. It was honey to his lips. He wanted more of it. It wasn't a burden to him. He desired God's word, kind of like you would desire sweet tea. I love my wife's sweet tea. I want it every day when I get home. This is how this man viewed the word of God. He yearned for it. He wanted to continue in it because it was honey to his lips. Thirdly, he remembered it. He didn't forget what he learned. He remembered it because to him, the truth of God is the greatest thought he could ever have in any moment of the day. You know, some of us are better at memorizing statistics of our favorite players than we are the Word of God. I know I am. And I want to be like this man. Because this man saw the infinite value of God's Word. He wanted it in his mind, nestled in his heart. And fourthly, he applied it not to earn God's favor. But because he knew that it was within this law, the way of Christ, that he was able to have freedom and liberty and blessing. So the question is, what man are we? Have we approached the word of God arrogantly like the man in the mirror, completely forgetting what we saw and heard? Have we valued it rightly? Do we find it more valuable than all the wealth and the riches of this world? Do we find it more valuable than our favorite team, Netflix or whatever it might be? Do we value it just as much as we value oxygen? Are you indifferent towards it? Do you think it's a burden to you or do you think it leads to blessing? James says that the mature man of Christ, one, receives the word humbly, two, he remembers it constantly because he sees that it's more valuable than all the gold of the world. Thirdly and quickly, if we're going to be more mature disciples of Christ and live a life pleasing to God, we must obey the word wholeheartedly. We see this in verses 22 verses, and also verses 26 through 27. We must obey the word wholeheartedly. Now, in verse 23, this is the thesis of the entire letter. We said it in the very beginning. Sandy said it last week. We are saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. The idea here is that faith is not passive. It's active. Now, the question is, what, is, what are we acting out? What's the active part of this faith? Well, the word for doer there, James used that as a pupil of Christ. You know, to be a doer is to be a pupil of Christ. That's how James uses it here. That was the classical uh, use of that word doer. So what he is saying is to be a disciple of Christ is actually to model Christ. It's to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a doer of the law means to follow the way of Christ. Okay, now that right there for a lot of folks is extracurricular activity. You know, like I said the sinner's prayer back when I was eight years old. You know, Jesus accepts me just as I am, which is true. I don't got to do anything else. Get off my back, Jack, right? 
When I was a kid, especially in college, I was like that. I was a Christer Christian. I went to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's it. And I usually left early to avoid traffic, all right? But I thought to myself that if I've just said the sinner's prayer, if I say that I'm a Christian, I'm fine. But Paul says that is not the point of our redemption, just to sit there and to continue on in our former life. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says the Spirit is transforming us day by day into the image of Christ, to become more and more like Christ. The purpose, then, of our redemption in Christ by the power of the Spirit is to become more like Christ. Okay, Jesus isn't transforming us into knowers. He's transforming us into himself. It's not about how much you know about Christ. It's about becoming like Christ. That's the motive we have when we read the word of God. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they knew mega doses of scripture. Even during his teaching, there was a lot during his ministry, there were, there were so many people who considered themselves superstar churchgoers. They, even some folks called themselves Christians. They said, Jesus is Lord. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount? He says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Everyone who hears my words and acts on them will be like a sensible man who has built his house on the rock. Paul says the same thing in Titus. He says, we are saved not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to God's mercy, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The point of our redemption is to become more and more like Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing. So that's what we do when we come to God's Word, not just to know more about Jesus, but to live like Jesus. Now in verses 26 through 27, he gives us some examples of what that looks like. And I don't have time to go into detail because I know we're behind. But he says to be like Christ is to bridle your tongue. This is just one manifestation of what that looks like. To be like Christ is to bridle your tongue. Jesus didn't speak words of poison. He didn't tear down people, but he spoke life into people. And as those united to Christ, that's what we do. James says our tongue is a gauge of our hearts. Jesus says the same thing in, in Mark chapter 7. So what do our tongues, what does our speech say about our hearts? Number two, to be like Christ is to care for the oppressed. Not just to think it's a good idea, but to actually care for the oppressed. God in Isaiah 1.10 says that our worship is meaningless if we don't seek justice, defend the oppressed, or take up the cause for the widow and the orphan. Luke 4, Jesus gives us his inaugural speech when he started his ministry. The greatest inaugural speech ever. And this is what he said. I have been sent to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and set the oppressed free. So we have to ask ourselves, are we about our father's business? Are we about our master's business? Or are we like the Pharisee in the Good Samaritan parable? When we see the hopeless and the helpless lying on the street, we walk to the other side of the road because it's easier. We care for the oppressed. And thirdly, to be like Christ is to resist temptation. Listen, as men, we must take responsibility here. Christ has forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future, and that's the glorious news of the gospel. But we still must kill our, our sins of our life. Paul says so in Romans 8. In fact, the only way that we can kill sin is if that sin is forgiven. And our sin is very much forgiven. So he gives us his spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Listen, those are just manifestations. That's not the entirety of what it means to follow Jesus. But he says that a true saving faith always manifests itself in changed character, changed desires, and an ever-increasing obedience to Christ. Receive the word of God humbly. Remember it constantly. And thirdly, obey the word of God, not perfectly, but wholeheartedly. There are two reactions to this passage, and I experienced both of them this week. We come to a passage like this, we might very well love the Word of God. We love Christ. But we come to a passage like this where James says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. We think to ourselves, man, that's really legalistic. And we battle against that. But friends, remember, this, this isn't this perfect law that we're supposed to obey. It's not to earn salvation. But it leads to a life of blessing. It's talking about enjoying the freedom and the life that Christ has already purchased us. Furthermore, when Christ says to abide in my word, to come to it in humility, as he says in John 15, it's not to put a noose around our necks. But he says, I'll command you to do this because when you do it, my joy will be in you. And your joy will finally be complete. Meaning that every joy that we have in this life, it's shallow and it's incomplete until we abide in God's word. It's only then in 
that we are actually filled with divine joy. He wants this not only because we need it as we need oxygen, but he wants it for our benefit because it's when we abide in God's word that we have joy. And secondly, and I experienced it this morning as I was thinking about this text, we can come to a passage like this and we can just become hopeless. And it's talking about repenting of our sin, relieving a repentant life, studying God's word, remembering God's word, submitting to God's word, and we think to ourselves, I can't do that. That's impossible for me. I fail all the time. This is beyond me. Well, friends, be assured that it is beyond you. So the answer then is not to muster up courage. And it's not to to find the strength within yourself. And it's not to give yourself a great halftime speech. But it's to trust and to rest in the fact that Christ already achieved the ultimate victory for you. You are secured in the house of God forever. You've been given His Spirit. You've been adopted into His family. You've been given new life. And just like the paraplegic that Jesus healed when he said, now take up your mat and follow me, the paraplegic didn't say, you know what, I'm just going to sit down on this mat because I love my bed sores. But he got up and he walked because his entire life he wanted new legs. And now he finally had new legs and he didn't walk, he just ran because he felt the wind against his face for the first time ever. Friends, we have new life in Christ. And he says, follow me. We need the gospel every single day of our lives. We never outrun our need to be reminded and to swim in the fact that in Christ our sins are forgiven. We are covered in his righteousness and we are secured in the eternal household of God forever. So friends, today and every day, receive that same word. Go to it and breathe it in just like oxygen. And as you rest in the gospel of Christ, and as you gaze into the glory of Christ, day by day, the Spirit of God works that in you. And He transforms your character, and He transforms your desire. And He enables you to follow the way of the Lord, the way that leads to blessing. That's maturity. And that's being a man in Christ, to receive the word of God humbly, to remember it constantly, and to obey it wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this new life that You've purchased for us, that You've achieved for us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, but You have given it to us. And Father, let us walk away here from today with not a noose around our necks, not burden, but joy that we actually have new life in You. But Father, empower us by Your Spirit to yearn for Your Word, to find it more beautiful and more valuable than all the gold of the world. Let us delight in your word, for truly in it we have life. And we pray this in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.